Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. First and foremost, I just want to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope you had a nice restful holiday break, whatever holidays you celebrate. And, you know, after what felt like a slog for so many of us, 2023 brought the challenges and we have hopefully overcome. I hope that you're back rested and energized for 2024. I know I certainly am. Had a very nice break, stayed here in LA, didn't do much. My goal was to not see another airport before the year ended because as you guys may know, I spent a lot of time on the road and in and out of airports throughout last summer making the dock. So I was very excited to just stay here and enjoy the peace and quiet that is LA when everybody else leaves. Here on the pod, we're celebrating new beginnings with an old friend the prolific film and television producer, Monica Levinson. While many of you may know her for her work on films like Borat, Zoolander, or Dodgeball, I'm grateful to know her as an ally and as a mentor. She most recently produced Old Dads, a comedy for Netflix that was written and directed by Bill Burr and stars him as well. It dropped on the platform at the end of October of last year and did really, really well for Netflix. On top of a very busy producing career, Monica is also an executive board member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She's with the PGA, the DGA, and on the leadership team for the Women's Production Society, which is another group that we share. She's also a founding member of Indie, which represents independent films in various endeavors. Even though we recorded this conversation at the end of 23, I'm excited to kick off 24 with Monica, with positive vibes, and with all the goodness that she has to offer. So I can't wait to hear what your takeaways are from this episode. So without further ado, here's Monica. It's so good to see you. What a treat that I get to see you on the day of the Women in Film Gala. So I get to see you twice in one day. I know you're going to be there. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Uh, where are you? Are you sitting with uh, Color Creative? Yes. So you'll be next to the WPS table. I know. I was excited. Which is great. I was going to go regardless and sit at the WPS table, but, you know, grateful that Color Creative is going to have me there. But I'm going to be jumping over there, hanging out yeah, with you guys. Yeah, I'm so glad. Well, we're going to get there around 530 or 6, like between 530 and 6. So we're going to do like a, a WPS picture. Great. So I'll be there. Good. Yeah, I'm going to come early because you guys switched venues this year. So it's closer to me. Yes. Yes. Well, with the hotel strikes, we didn't want to get into a situation where there might be a strike and yeah, smart, uh, you know, be in a situation where people would have to feel the pressure of crossing a picket line. So we changed. So that's what we do. We pivot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, we can just jump right in. I mean, you know, okay. It's a time capsule of your career because there's no way, obviously, reading your bio and, and, and how much you've accomplished in your young age, young lady, how much there is to cover like we would be here yeah. all day. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to um, start at the beginning. And I think for me and for the listeners, it's it's a really special conversation because, you know, you, we can look you up and read about how much of a force you are. And that is undeniable from your bio and from the words. But I get to say that from a firsthand experience of you and how you've been, I, I don't know if you know this, but I consider you one of my fairy godmothers of producing, you know, just those people that are really there to to shepherd and help and guide and answer the phone when you're like panicking about something. You've helped me with so many transitions and questions and that I've had, you know, when people come to me on this show looking for guidance and I'm like, I'm just still figuring shit out, you know? So it's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, I know mentorship is so important to you. You've given so much of your time and I've gotten to benefit firsthand from some of that time. And so it's extra special for me to have you on and to thank share the space with you. So thank you for taking the time. Of course, that's really sweet of you to say. It's, you know, I, I feel like it's really important to help out our fellow producers and fellow colleagues in this industry and people help me all the time. And, you know, if I have information, I'd like to impart it. Yeah. I have people struggle, you know, if, it's if hard you enough. Make, if you can have one shortcut, 
It would be great. I know. Or just even know that someone else has been able to weather that particular storm who's come before you too, you know? Yeah. It's very true. There's there's really no shortcuts, but you're right. It's, <laughs> it's about feeling that there's a process here and that other people have gone through it, even if it's not exactly the same path for each person. Yeah, and that it's possible. I think so much of the show it really d- dives into this idea of longevity. How do you sustain yourself doing this work as producers? Because it is so hard. It can be so lonely. Um, even though it is a collaborative sport, oftentimes the role of a producer, there are moments where you're in true collaboration with others, but then there's a lot of time where you're alone. And so many of the women that have come on that I admire, really for them, what's been their secret sauce of how they've sustained is through partnerships, is through having, whether producing partners or collectives and groups, communities where they can turn to and be like, I'm dealing with this. Have you ever dealt with that? And then you realize that someone else has had that experience and they can kind of guide you through your own journey and your own version of that experience. And I don't know, I find having created this show, having been a part of so many groups I now get to be a part of, WPS being one of them, it's just game changer. You know, it really is knowing that there's so many women out there who are fighting the good fight and doing the Lord's work. to keep it's, us it's going so you know about, yeah it's it's true about partnerships and i i learned that with amy bear who is a wonderful producer and the two of us produced a movie together uh along with when i was at shiv Han's pictures but amy really we were on set every day together and she brought one set of skills and i brought another set of skills and i loved collaborating with her because i was able to learn from her and you know, let her lead in certain ways. And she was able to do the same with me. And it was the best. It was like, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. Yeah, You know, it's not, you know, we don't have to do it all alone. And we can bring our our specialties to the table. And I don't need to be good at everything that she's good at. I can be good at who I, you know, at the things I do and lean on her for those other pieces where she can bring her strengths to the table. That requires tremendous humility and lack of ego, which, you know, plagues some people in our industry. And I think oftentimes is what holds them back from reaching their their highest potential because it is so collaborative. And I think when you know your space in a certain team, in a dichotomy where you can really thrive, where you can really show up, that's where I've seen it really be that magic that everyone looks for in the partners. And it's you don't always find it, you know? And I think when you do have it, it's so precious. And that the fact that you've gotten to have that experience with someone like Amy Bear, who's phenomenal, is remarkable. It was a blessing. And I, you know, I've, I've tried to do that. Since then, I learned so much on that project just by the collaboration and how to work with, the, you know, within that collaboration that I really have brought in on my other projects and um, been able to take a step back and say, okay, this is what I will take care of this. And I I see that you're really good at that. So why don't you handle that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to take us back just to the beginning a little bit, just to the seeds, beginning seeds of your journey that has led you here. I know that you started your career in broadcast news. You went to acting camp from what I researched. You took voice lessons, did tap, jazz, ballet, all of the things. But then you realized very quickly that that wasn't for you and you belonged behind the scenes. When you had that realization how did you start to narrow in on what that behind the scenes could look like for you? Because you could have gone into screenwriting, you could have done all these other kinds of jobs, but what was it that slowly led you into this more of a producing path? I think first off, as I was growing up, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I didn't realize that I could move to California, that I could work in the film business. I just thought that was really cool. (laughs) And, but, you know, in general, I was thinking, okay, well, I have to find a job where I can be close to DC, maybe New York. But I generally just fell to, you know, anything organizational I sort of was attracted to. So I was editor of my yearbook. I like to go into management positions. And through my yearbook, actually, through that, we were like named top Maryland yearbook or whatever. I can't remember the award we got, but we went to a convention and they screened a movie there and the actors came out and talked to us. And I was in like the third row of the screening of this movie, White Nights, which was with Barishnikov and Gregory Hines. <laughs> but Gregory Hines came out and talked about the making of the movie. And I just remember just being in awe and hearing him talk about like the actual producing of it and and the production. And I think that sort of started my my wheels turning. 
thought, oh, that's something. And um, I went to school at Syracuse at the Newhouse School and majored in television, radio, film management. So when I got out of school, I got this job in TV news and producing was what I was doing within that company. I was like managing the office and doing field producing. And so it just kind of fell in and it fell into place. That was where I felt most comfortable. And it was very much in me about who I was. I was just somebody who like, to take control and lead. I was, you know, president of my sorority. It was just, you know, just who I am. Yeah. So writing was, you know, I like to write, but not screenplays. I like to direct. As you know, I just yes. dabbled in that on a documentary. But do I want to sit on set all day long? You know, I'd like to go and take a phone call. I like producing. You know, yeah. I like having other things going on. I like having my tentacles out there in a lot of different places. And so I think that lends itself to producing. So then how do you how do you pivot from broadcast news, news and journalism into your first opportunity that gets you on the path to film and to Borat eventually? Right. Well, um, it was, you know, I guess a lot of luck. But I had gone uh, when I was producing in TV news, I went to a behind the scenes of a movie shoot to film it for Entertainment Tonight. And there I thought, well, this is really cool. This is definitely something I want to do. So I started applying to a whole bunch of films that were coming into the D.C. area. There happened to be things that were showing up. Forrest Gump was coming. I mean, it was way back then. Yeah, well. And True Lies was coming in and Pelican Brief. And so I started just sending my emails to, I mean, not emails, sorry. Back then it was uh, faxes, I believe. Um, <laughs> but I started sending my faxed resume places and nobody wanted to hire me because I was in TV news and it had no bearing on the film industry. So I begged somebody in New York. I just kept calling places and I begged. I finally got this woman, Trisha. Hoffman, who's a producer, but she was an art department coordinator. And she answered the phone. And I was like, Oh, great, somebody's answering the phone. And I said, Please let me come intern. And she said, I, you know, we don't really need anybody. I said, it's fine. I'll come up to, you know, I'll, I'll be there. Finally, after like three times of getting her on the phone, she said, fine, come in Monday. <laughs> and I said, great, I'll be there. And I got my suitcase and, you know, got on the train and slept on friends' couches for a couple of weeks in New York and interned for them. And at that end of that two weeks, I couldn't afford it anymore. I had quit my job in TV news at that point because yeah. they had wanted me to go into more sales and I wasn't doing that. But they did pay me $50 for waiting for the phone company one day, this job where I interned. And I had to sit and wait for them for like, I don't know, three hours. So I said, well, does that mean I'm a production assistant and not an intern? And they said, yes. So I said, great. So I put PA <laughs> promotion you know, assistant on <laughs> yeah. my resume. Yeah. And it was a Ron Howard movie. And my so when Pelican Brief saw that I just worked in New York on a Ron Howard movie, they said, oh, well, why don't you come and work with us? Right, and right, right, right. So that was sort of my start. And I got a job buzzing people in the front door and answering the phones. But on that job, I met Celia Costas, who is a mentor to me. Yeah. She was the production manager, I believe. And also Jamie Boscard and Martin, who is also one of my dearest friends, my best friend. Uh, and she produces Bosch, but she was the assistant to the producer. So she said to Celia, I think Monica has a place to stay in New York. And they were heading up to New York after DC. So they brought me along and it just kind of continued from there. I did eight movies with Celia after that. So you started as a PA and actually worked your way up through the production office. I did. So I went up, I became production secretary, really PA, production secretary, um, assistant coordinator, coordinator, production supervisor. And then I moved to Los Angeles and decided that I wanted to be in a place where the projects originated as opposed to the places where they came once mm. they figured out where they needed to be. And that was important to me. I sort of, as I was going through, I realized I wanted to be more of a creative producer as opposed to a line producer, but I knew that I was good at line producing. So I knew that was my, I had to use that to move me into the place that I wanted to be, which is not easy to do. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that because 
so many people who are younger and listening, when they say they want to be a producer, they're often like, well, I want to be a creative producer. I don't want to do the other stuff. And I'm always disheartened to hear them say that because I think they're doing a huge disservice to themselves as a, as a well-rounded capital P producer. I think if you don't understand production and execution to some level, you're just missing such a huge piece of the puzzle. It's like the most expensive part of any project lives and dies by that very precious period of time. So to not want to have deeper understanding of that. I've, I've never understood that. It's always been a mind-boggling thing for me as someone who came up very similarly. And, you know, we live in an industry where you, you do get sort of like put in a box where it's like, well, you came up in production. And so your production, like you couldn't possibly understand creative. We'll leave that to the creatives and to the development execs. And obviously, I find that very offensive and upsetting. <laughs> and we've definitely talked about this off mic a, a ton. Bit. But I think for people listening, yes. will you just so they can hear it from you, like dispel a little bit about that and explain how how actually you coming up in that path aided you and supported you into stepping into that creative producer role that most people know you as now? Well, first off, it gave me a huge amount of experience and I was able to learn the business from coming up through production. So I have a huge amount, just like you said, I have a huge amount of knowledge that people that came up as just creative producers don't necessarily have. So I didn't really know that that was a power or a superpower until I started creative producing and number one, saw what my partners appreciated in having me as their partner, that I had this knowledge and that I was able to bring that to the table, mm -hmm. number one. And also how much I appreciated my line producers when I became a creative producer and had to work with the line producers. And I realized when somebody used to introduce me as a line producer, I used to get upset, you know, because I was sometimes doing both and I was a hybrid. And I remember Jay Roach said to me, you don't understand. Like when I say you're my line producer, like that is like, you're my savior. You're my person. You're my person that saves the day every day. Yeah. And I said, but Jay, I'm your producing partner also, you know, I mean, this is, that's important to me. Yeah. And um, he said, yeah, but it's so much more important to me to have you as my line producer. Interesting. And so, yeah, it was a great perspective. And I sat with that a little bit and I thought through it. And then as I moved up, I thought, oh, yeah. You know, like when I introduce somebody as like my star line producer, I'm like, oh, thank God for them. You know, they're amazing and they're really bringing it to the table. It is a rebranding. It's a rebranding of what that means, because I think coming up, there is this sense of like, you're just yes. the line just. producer. Yeah, right? exactly. Oh, they're just the line producer, but these are the producers. And there's the, you hear that so much, even when you're just coming up in the in the, you know, the ranks of it, that it does it become in indoctrination almost so that when you're trying to pivot, you're also like, well, no, I, I know I can do that, but I'm this, you know, and you really like I remember coming up, I would never want to take a line producer UPM role. I was like, no, I want to be a co-producer. Yes. And now looking back, it's like I could have had all my DGA days. I could have like been right. in a completely different lane <laughs> because I didn't know any better because no one pulled me aside and taught me that. But I think that it's it's so important to dispel because the, the line producers are the heartbeat of a production oftentimes and it, it not in in, yeah. in silo of course they work with a a collective it's an orchestra but it is such that we are we are the unsung heroes um, yes. they are the unsung heroes and it's important that we rebrand and now ask producers who are in that place where we can introduce the new generation of line producers as the star players as the rock stars and so that other people start to hear that and associate with that yeah, yeah and there's you know listen there's all different types of line producers and yeah uh, true. so i was raised in the business you know by celia who once she was on set she never left set so that was how i did my job and i you know from as soon as i became a production supervisor i left the office on day one of the shoot and i never came back until wrap because i would sign payroll sitting behind the monitor you know and just have the packages come to me to do that job because i wanted to be on set and i wanted to be a part of what was happening on set now there are some line producers that just prefer to stay in the office and that's a different version of the job, you know, but I, I wanted to get that experience and I wanted to be there. And that's really, I think what led me into being more creative because I was there with every decision and I was on set as we were going along. And so that certainly helped in having Celia who, you know, did that and was a director's producer, if you will, somebody right. who really served the director yeah. in film. So, you know, for me, my biggest break was Zoolander. 
because I had already moved to Los Angeles and Celia, basically we went back to New York to do Zoolander. And she said, you know, you could be the production manager and be by my side. It's going to be a bear. But we also have all these things that were never budgeted. We have to shoot live at the VH1 Fashion Awards. We have to shoot these male model of the year packages that were digital packages that weren't really something that you did back in 2000 when we shot. So that was a a more difficult undertaking. We had these still photos that we had to do. We had to do like little commercials. We had to do billboards uh, throughout the city and they had to be fashion billboards. So she said, you could go do that. And that would be something different. I said, I'm there. That's what I'm doing. So she hired a production manager and I went over and started doing all of those units. And that was way more interesting and fulfilling and certainly harkened back to my TV news days because it was scrappy. I had to be scrappy. The Teamsters called me Madame Bowfinger because I was literally, if you know the movie, I was I was just basically stealing from first unit every day um, <laughs> because, you know, they'd say, Monica, what do you need tomorrow? You know, do you need a truck? Do you need equipment? And I was like, I need nothing. I need nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then they would come, you know, the next day I'd be like, I just need <laughs> that little steak bed. And then I'm just going to, it's just sitting here all day. So I'm going to take it with me. We're going to take a a camera from that truck. You know, I tried out some digital cameras and it was, you know, like the beginning of the digital era and it was a Paramount film, but I was just like, these are packages that are going to be on screen and we can do this. And I shot video, you know, all through my TV news days. So that was just normal. So, you know, I brought all of that to the table from the, you know, you have TV news experience that has nothing to do with the film industry to actually it really helped me. So I did that. And then Ben and Stuart, Stuart Kornfeld, uh, who was Ben Stiller's producing partner, they asked me to stay on through Post. And I knew Post because of my TV news days as well. And actually Pelican Brief, I stayed on through Post. So I was there for post-production. So that just sort of started me on the more complete producing path, which is what I really love. And then, you know, stayed on through home video, did the same thing for them on Dodgeball, and then called up Danny Goldberg, who was my boss on uh, the producer on Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie, and called him every once in a while because I knew like three people in Los Angeles when I moved here. And he was one of them. So I finished Dodgeball and I said, hi, just calling to say I'm still looking for an in-house job or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And he called me back two weeks later and he said, you know, it's funny you called because you'd be perfect for this. And he brought me in. He said, do you know who Sasha Baron Cohen is confidentially? And I said, yeah, I love Dally G Show. And uh, he said, okay, well, he's doing a movie. It's really confidential. Sign this NDA. And I came in and I basically started on that. It was supposed to be a three-month job. Again, because I was scrappy, I ended up sticking between Borat and Bruno being on that for five years and being, you know, kind of the last man standing. And Jay Roach was the producer on that, but he was also getting his own movies because he's directing. He wasn't directing those movies, but he was directing um, another project. And so, you know, we were in close contact, but, you know, I was sort of the, the producer on the ground at all times. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that you know, oftentimes people wonder, well, I have this experience and I don't have this and I don't know how I transition into into the is a producer into this. And I always say, like, lean into what you have, lean into however the path has already unfolded. And you're such an example of that, of instead of looking at this experience that was your baseline as like a deficit to the process and going, well, there's so much I don't know. You said, Nope. Well, you probably figured out at some point that nobody knows anything anyway, and everybody's just figuring shit out. So you were like, I'm just going to lean into all of this stuff that I do know and all these tools in my toolkit, and I'm just going to figure it out and make it happen. And that very thing became your secret sauce. And and the time and time again, it sounds like the magic that makes people go, you'd be perfect for this, or you have this way of working that others would not thrive in that same environment, you know? But I loved all of that. You know, I mean, I really did. I thought that was much more fun. I didn't want to sit there and look at how many grip man days there were <laughs> and and talk to people about, you know, their box rentals. No, I just, you know, it's just like, I can do that. I know I can, but yeah, yeah, that yeah. looked like much more fun, even though it was a huge challenge. And I knew it was going to be a lot. Of course. It just was fun and it was creative. And I was able to, you know, I, I just, it was really great to be able to go to like the VH1 Fashion Awards and, you know, the ADs were like, we can't do this. And I was like, 
Yeah, we can. It's fine. Everybody move away, move aside. I'm going to do this, you know, like my TV news days. So, you know, we had a red carpet. I had to bring Ben down the red carpet and I wanted to use all the photographers. We had all this production value. Why wouldn't I use the photographers (laughs) that were sitting there? So I said, I'll bring out Ben Stiller, but you have to call him Derek. And if you call him Derek, he will come out onto the carpet and he will pose for you. You can do everything you want. And I'm going to film you guys. Everybody all right? And I'm like, uh, you know, and I said, listen, it's the only way you're getting Ben Stiller on the carpet. So everybody cool. You're going to call him Derek. And I said, yes. So we filmed. He came out, you know, everybody yelled Derek. All the photographers yelled Derek and he did his posing. And we have the best shot from that, you know, of the real event. So th- there's a fearlessness to that, right? To just being the person who, as a producer, you are behind the scenes, but you are creating space, especially with this style of working, this documentary, mockumentary, which you've done, especially with Borat. Like you have to really insert yourself in places. You're not just behind the scenes being like, I'm just here if to sign a release or if you need me. Like you are a force that has to be front and center and will things into existence like most producers do, but in a really real way. Where do you think that fearlessness comes from you? And did you have at any point in the process during those various projects moments where you were afraid of like, how am I actually going to do this? I mean, I know you got arrested on one of the Borat films. Like some of these things actually happened. These are real world consequences. This isn't just like we're making a movie. It's cute. You know, this is real. So how do you go into these environments with this fearlessness? And when you do feel trepidation, what is it that you do to push past it? First off, I'm not alone. You know, this is a collaborative medium. And that's why you hire a great crew. That's why you work with people that you trust, or you try to work with people that you trust. It's why you, you know, when you are presented with an issue, you do your research and figure out how to not make it scary. Or in like with Borat, how to make sure that you have the security you need so that you're in a place where you can still be creative and get what you need to get. So, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it's about preparation and it's about collaboration. I mean, that's, that's what our jobs are, right? You know, if there's a problem, you figure out how to solve it or you figure out how best to approach it. I hate doing big car crash, you know, scenes or anything that's with a big stunt, like it freaks me out. You know, the last thing anybody wants is for a crew member or an actor or somebody to get hurt or, you know, or I mean, it's just terrifying. Yeah. So you don't go into that just going, okay, well, let's see what happens. You know, you go into it with, (laughs) yeah, let's talk about every safety precaution. Let's talk about what if this happens and then that, how are we going to avoid this happening? And you just talk through the process. You know, I'm, I'm always the person trying to get as much information as possible. And I say, you know, speak to me like I'm a five-year-old, please, about how this mechanism works. So even with Sasha, when he's stepping into this character of Borat, and it's it's not, you know, dangerous in the sense of, of doing stunts, but it, you're stepping into places in political arenas and pushing boundaries of conversations do you guys go into that having had a sense of like, all right, here's all the things that could potentially go wrong that we can identify. And if so, here's how we're going to pivot. But then there's certainly things that happen that you could not have expected. Is it just in that real time, just finding a way through that? Yeah, I think you're just making sure that you're prepared for whatever eventualities will come. My job, you know, when I was on those films was to make sure that there was a safe space for Sasha to perform. And that he could rest assured that he was, when he was in character, he had precautions there and safeguards in case anything went south so that he could be funny and be off the cuff and he didn't have to be thinking about all those other things. And so that's really, that's really the job to, to build that space for him. And yes, things go south and there's certain risks. And of course there were days where I was just like, Oh God, you know, like <laughs> this is not going to be fun. And, you know, and any time where my sense where I really felt like there was a real problem, you know, because we weren't making jackass, we weren't trying to do something where people could get hurt, or where people were intentionally putting themselves at danger. So there were times where, if I really felt in my gut that something was going to go wrong, I would either push back and say, maybe we shouldn't be there. Or we would 
then go back and talk through it. I would go to Sasha or he would come to me sometimes and we would talk through it and come up with other ways to put in safeguards to make sure that it was safe. And that was my job to keep everybody safe. I remember on the first one, Larry Charles said to me, your job is like sending all your kids out to kindergarten, but you're the kindergarten teacher and you're letting them go play in traffic. And then you count them when they come home. <laughs> and I was like, it's not really like that, but that's how it feels some days, you know? That's how it feels. Yes. Yeah. At its core, what does being an exceptional producer mean to you? I think it's doing my research. It's thinking through problems. It's allowing space for the team to have their vision and talk through it and really allow the space for us to try different things and really make sure that people feel comfortable to create, you know, and to, to try something different. So I think, you know, I think mm -hmm. that's really something I learned where it's so easy to say, that's a crazy idea. No. And obviously, being a producer on those Sasha movies and being a producer in another realm, you know, like on old dads is, is a different world, but I didn't like to just shoot down ideas. I don't like to shoot down ideas because I think there's merit in every idea and we need to play it out and see what works. And a lot of times, you know, I'm not the creator on a television show or I'm not the director or I'm not the key talent. And if they have something, they're bringing something to the table that again, I don't necessarily have and I am not bringing to the table. And so I, I like to make sure that I create a space where they can be creative and where we all can talk through a scenario and see if it works out. Yeah, well, that's a very good note. I think that producers, especially line producers, get the, the bad rap of just being no, no men, no women. It's a lot of fear that creatives have as well of just like, well, if this person's in the room, they're going to hear this idea and shoot it down. And I always like to say it's not it's not for that. It's like I want to be a part of the conversation of the brainstorm so I can be informed of all the all the things and all the permutations of what you're thinking so we can find out what's possible so we can explore those ideas together. And when department heads are asking me, I can also be informed and in explaining what it is we're attempting to do. Right. No, of, of course. As part of the collective. And I think as a producer, I hope that in turn, everybody's making space for me as well as I speak about something that I want to get across or there's an idea I have. But ultimately, you know, I've been working with a lot of people who are singular voices, you know, like Sasha yeah. or Bill Burr. And that's really where I'm talking. You know, there's... They are who they are for a reason, and mm -hmm. I want them to shine for that reason. And there's also some independent filmmakers that are doing some amazing work and sort of like the, you know, the Daniels, for instance, if I read that script, I'm not sure that I, I like, I don't understand it, you know, and, you right. know, <laughs> um, and there's just a certain point where you have to go, okay, wait a second, let me take a step back. And take, you know, I'm talking about everything everywhere all at once, but, you know, yeah. like take a step back and really think to myself, okay, these people have a specific vision that I really want to pay attention to and listen to as opposed to my first instinct, which is this isn't the linear path that I can see creatively right there in front of me. How this unfolds. Yeah. yeah. So I just think that there's so many voices out there that we have to listen to those voices and, and let them like I said, make space for them. Well, it's a symbiotic trust. I think yeah. in the same way that a good producer is is creating space for a creative, the creative, the director, the filmmaker has to trust that at every step of the process, that producer has their back. Yeah. Because if you're constantly wondering what their intentions are, then it just, it, you lose that collaborative spirit. And I say that all, a lot of times because it's always the questions about, oh, how do you find a good producer and what makes a good producer? You know, creatives ask this a lot. And I ask, how are you a good partner to a producer as well? Yeah. You know, it's not just a one-way street. We're not just here to just enable everything that you want to do. We're here to like be a, a collaborator. And that comes with sometimes having to hold up a mirror and go, okay, is this is this the path? It takes that trust and that trust takes time to build. I think that's why a lot of times people when they're starting out can have bad experiences with some producers that could sour them to producers. But it's like, well, maybe that just wasn't the right fit for that project. You exactly. also have to have someone who sees, who can see through, even if they don't quite understand your vision, they somehow believe that we're going to get there together, you know, and they're going to figure it out together. And if they're the whole time just kind of like, 
not getting it, then it's too much energy to also try to rally them to understand your vision. It's just not, nobody has time for that. So, so I think that's really important. Is there, is there a lesson that you feel like a really hard lesson you learned the hard way throughout your producing career? Maybe something that still haunts you, something that you're like, oh, I wish I, I could have learned that lesson in a simpler form. I mean, honestly, I, I, it, it's a constant learning process. And if it isn't, I'm bored. Yes. So if I'm not learning something new at all times, I'm not interested in saying there's always, you know, speaking up for myself, not just I'm mm-hmm. I'm very good at protecting others and I'm very good at uh, protecting the creative and protecting the project and protecting the budget and protecting my cast and crew. But when it comes to taking care of myself, uh, I'm less less good at that. So, you know, that's something that I've had to get better at, you know, through my career. I was going to say, how has that journey been? How has that journey been? Do you feel like, is it just... I mean, part of it is getting an agent because I'm just better at protecting others. So let somebody protect me. <laughs> um, so yeah. that's, that's one thing, you know, we're getting a lawyer, you know, somebody else who's going yeah, to make yeah. your deal. But, you know, ultimately, I've just been more comfortable in who I am. And just decided that if I'm not going to stand up for myself, nobody else will. Yeah. And so I need to do it and uh, and not be embarrassed by it or whatever. I mean, it's just other people do it all day long. So we have to do it for ourselves. And, you know, I mean, it's hard because we know all the issues, especially when we're making our deals. We know all the issues with budgets. We know we know what the budget can withstand. Right. So ultimately I would just fight for a credit as opposed to the money. So yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which which leads us to this the next sort of section, mini section of the of the chat, which is talking about the challenges. You know, I think a lot about and talk a lot about sustainability and longevity in this business, especially for women. And I often wonder it's there's so many ups and downs to this career path into Hollywood and to success. I'm curious how you've navigated and how you've been able to sustain yourself during the downs, whether they be financial or emotional or personal life stuff, whatever that is. What is it that has helped you kind of stay the course? Well, you know, there were years, literally years that I didn't work. You know, there's big gaps in periods of time between Zoolander and Dodgeball. There was, I think it was like a year and a half, two years where I just had to do odds and ends. I mean, my motto was sort of act as if, so I didn't really change my behavior. I just kept going and waiting. I just didn't know anybody when I moved to Los Angeles. So it was, it was tough for me to reinvent myself as a Los Angeles production supervisor and ultimately producer. And then I think it's just about not necessarily knowing what you want, but knowing what piece of the pie you might be interested in and not closing yourself off to all opportunities. So I made sure that I was open to a lot of different things. And then I would know in my gut if something came, uh, you know, came along that just didn't feel right. And I felt comfortable saying, you know, I'm going to not do that. Right. So, you know, it's just about staying the course, I think. And, uh, and just trusting your gut and be willing to try different avenues. Did you ever have seasons of any of those lulls where you maybe considered leaving the industry where you felt so disheartened or discouraged because maybe you were getting, you know, the, the odds ins and outs of odds odd jobs to kind of sustain you, but you were like, I know that I kind of want to be here. I know the piece of the pie that I want to be playing in and I feel removed from that. Did you ever struggle with that? I struggled. I've always been trying to come up with what's my plan B. (laughs) And I could never come up with one. You know, there just hasn't been one strong thing that could be a real plan B for me. Yeah. If I did, then, you know, maybe there was there would be a time where I could have veered. You know, I've looked into law school because I thought I wanted to go to law school way back when. And then I looked into it again. And I even looked into it again recently. I was like, could I or should I just get my master's in business and my MBA, you know, do an MBA program? You know, I mean, I've just been thinking about like, how would that help me? You know, would that help me navigate in a different way? So I did think about that law school when I was younger. 
maybe, you know, during those years when I was sitting there not working, but I really never could come up with that plan B. If I did, I think I could have veered, but I did think hard about it. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never came up. Yeah. And listen, but it was about going in different avenues, you know, in different ways of navigating the business, you know, and I always thought my plan B would really be to be an assistant because I'd be a really damn good assistant to a producer, you know, just like a career assistant. Yes. <laughs> yes I'd be so good. Paid a lot of money um, to, and I'd, yeah. I'd be fine doing it. You know, I mean, I'd yeah. still be in the business. I'd still be a part of it. And I don't think that's a bad thing, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You still get to be connected to it. So yeah, money has never driven me. So that's, you know, it's about being in that seat and being a part of that process. That's good. That's good. It d- drives a lot of people. So and there's nothing wrong with that. I think you have to know what what is important to you. So, you know, in the light of a very challenging year, we're recording this at the end of 23, but we're going to release at the top of 24, which will be a great way to start the new year (laughs) from a podcast perspective. But, you know, it's been a hard year. We've had, uh, we came off the heels of of, of a pandemic to two strikes back to back. For me, the strikes, obviously, I'm glad that they have resolved, but there's still this larger looming issue of the entire business model has completely changed in a way that it's only harder and harder for indie producers to sustain, much less thrive in their career path. What are your thoughts on just all of it and like looking ahead to 24? And then for someone who is either coming up in the independent producing path, starting now or or looking to kind of you know, they're maybe mid-career, how does one continue to stay the course when the model itself is inherently changing in a way that does not favor people like us who have no protections, who are not part of any of the unions and are getting sort of left out of these conversations for as much progress as some, you know, some have made with the producers union and some other ways that we can be taken care of in a better way? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the independent film business has been moving in this direction for several years. Uh, it's just has a big punctuation point, you know, or exclamation point at the end of it now that I've been sort of screaming this now at the end of this, this four year period. But I have been screaming this at the top of my lungs, you know, for a while where we've been chasing these tax credits. Budgets are being asked to be, you know, be brought down. So we chase tax credits to, to fill in that gap. Then we got to a place where they're like, okay, now you have to come in lower, but rates are rising every year. Equipment costs, there's inflation, everything is rising. And yet there's less places we can go for that tax credit. And even so, it's not quite helping. And everybody's saying, make what used to cost 15 million, make it for two or make it for 3 million now, because you can't, the foreign market crashed, you know, everything is, you know, it's depressing. So how do you do it? And it's, to me, it's something that, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I personally saw the trend a few years ago and thought I really want to get into television. And so, you know, I, although I have my hands in several, you know, I had old dads come out um, in October, um, my Bill Burr movie. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. It did very well on Netflix. Yes. But, uh, you know, I've been working in television for the last year and shooting overseas. Um, I've been spent six of the last eight months in the UK on a TV series. And I also, you know, like it was really exciting for me, whereas doing more, doing films, cutting them down to a size where trying to make a traditional film for $2 million, something that would cost, should cost 15 means you have to cut out so much of the fabric of that movie. If you can make something like Past Lives, and, you know, you're making something that's supposed to be small and intimate, then it's worth going and making a smaller film and doing something that costs less. But, you know, none of my projects were in that space. Uh, I think the lowest we got down to like Wander Darkly, which I love, we made for six million. And but to make that for two, we would have lost a lot of what would have oh, been special gosh, about yeah. it. So it was hard enough to make it for six. And that was what with twenty. That was we shot that in twenty eighteen. So um, yeah, the business is tough, and I I you know my advice is if you love it, you do it, you know, and you keep trying, and you if you see no other plan B, then you keep going. And if there's a plan B, a way that you can veer or do something that's within the means, you know, within the business that still makes you happy, then do that and try to 
keep your independent business on the side because I'm not sure that it is sustainable as a full career because of our salaries that you get on a, a $2 million, $6 million, $10 million film are not necessarily sustainable unless you're doing several of those a year, but they require all of your efforts yeah. and all of your time yes. because you don't have the infrastructure. And so it's all on you. And so there's no real way of, unless you're, you're, able to have, you know, you're independently wealthy and somebody else or somebody else is supporting you. Correct. Or you marry, marry for money, not for love. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, the, I think the average income of an independent producer, and I forget where this report was, but it was $25,000 a year was the average income. That means there's a lot of zeros, a lot of independent producers that are making $0 a year. And then there's a couple that are making yeah, a hundred. Yeah, yeah, two hundred thousand maybe. But yeah, and that's and that's like the year your project goes into production. That certainly doesn't take the development years into consideration and everything else. So that's why there's a lot of zeros because it's the you know years ahead, you know the years behind. And yeah, I think that's that's it. You know, it's not to dissuade anyone listening. No. It's like Monica said, if you if you believe in this and you love this industry, you find a way. But it doesn't. I think the smoke and mirrors of the glamour of what it all appears to be, especially if you do get to have the the moments of success where you go to a festival or you know are nominated for awards, it can seem very fancy. But that is like the one percent of time that happens to a small percentage right. of projects. But if, but if you love it and you think your project has it, then you go do it. And figure out a way and figure out a yeah. way to shoot it and find, pull every favor and go make it because there's nothing better than something that you love and adore and other people are enjoying it. That's just why we do it. You know, we yeah. do it for that moment that you get to. Sadly, um, that's going away too. But the, you know, you sit in a movie theater and people have emotions. You know, I remember my last Sundance yes. was with Wander Darkly and people crying in the movie theater and people having that visceral reaction to the movie. There's nothing better. You know, I mean, I, I remember having a hard time catching my own breath because it was such a special moment to have people, you know, having an emotional reaction to something that you work so hard on. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I, I hope that it, it, it inspires people to stay the course, because the reality is, if you can find a way to sustain yourself and still be able to push these important stories forward, it's important because this is oftentimes it's the, the somebody said this once on one of my, the conversations I had that, you know, the independent film scene is in a way projects that no one has asked for, but that everyone really needs, mm -hmm. you know, that the world really needs and to be a part of getting to make those kinds of stories, it is really rewarding. But you have to have, of course, other parts of your life fulfilled. You have to be able to pay your rent. And if you want a family, right. like all of these things matter as well. So I think yep. it's like everyone has to go on that journey to find that balance for themselves because there yeah. isn't one secret answer no. to what is work-life balance, what is balance within pursuing things more on the independent side while still maybe having a full-time job right. that you have to work, you know? Exactly. And it's, it's, I think if it's something that you really feel strongly about and you really want and you love it, you know, and you want to try, you should try. So we hope that that encourages people, doesn't dissuade people, because we need you. No, we we need um, those new voices. That's what I'm saying. Like those, you know, that's why it's really exciting to see those special voices that are emerging every year at the film festivals. It's those creative voices that are, it's interesting that are being mainstreamed by the industry, yeah. and they're you know like past lives, for instance. I brought it up, you know, just earlier, but oh, it's I, just being mainstreamed. It's you know on a track right now it's lovely to see i know and it's it's so lovely to see that that movie similarly to wander darkly but for different reasons like sucked the soul out of me in such a profound way yeah. both both films i saw with my husband actually wander darkly was one of our first date movies which i don't no. recommend <laughs> not a date movie no. it was certainly not a beautiful experience yeah no yeah it was like one of the first movies we saw together and we were just like uh, okay how do we talk about this but no just really beautiful stories that i i like 
those are the kind of movies that fire me up as well to go, wow, like if Celine Song could do it, like then maybe there's the hope for for more of us and more of these kinds of stories. But I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we have time to talk about your documentary, The Stories of Us, because it's so special to you and the way that it came about and just reading about it um, is so fascinating. And this idea of producing your own work, of like believing in an idea and just kind of going to the end of that idea. And I know that, it started, the doc started as a personal project for you where you just wanted to sort of document, you know, your family at Thanksgiving dinner and just have this for you guys. And then slowly it became clear that there was something bigger there. So talk us a little bit about when you realize, well, one, stepping in to actually co-direct and at what point you realize you needed someone else to support you. And then at what point between the initial dinner and the finished film, did you realize, oh, this isn't just like a family sort of journal entry, you know, video vlog, if you will. This is actually something bigger. This is a doc and I want to share it with others. Well, yeah. So thank you. I mean, it it's really, even though I put it out in the world, it's a very personal project and obviously it's a love yeah. letter to my family. Um, but, you know, I just was filming because, you know, my mother wanted me to write, do like a family history, writing it down at dinner. She got some book, you know, as a present for Hanukkah that year. And she was like, oh, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, you write down, you ask your family questions. And I was like, I'm not doing that. So I brought a camera home and, you know, and just naturally the table. And then yes. it just became like a three hour dinner. And I filmed the morning activities, because our Thanksgiving weekends are, we have a lot of family events with my cousins and my aunts and uncles and my, you know, everybody, yeah. my siblings and my parents. So I came home and just brought that, put those tapes, they were tapes, um, put them aside and never looked at them. And 10 years, nine years later, my uncle just asked me what, what we were doing with them. And I said, oh, gosh. And so I went to my friend who my friend, Stephen Henches, and he edits and has his own equipment. And I said, can you help me with this? I just want to do something for my family. And that was 2017. When I went back, I filmed more material because I realized I missed half the family. And he put he helped me put something together. And then we showed it to the family. And that was that. And then during the pandemic, um, anti-Semitism was creeping up. I think it's always been there, but you yeah. know, I started to see more. But it just overt. became more apparent. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There mm-hmm. were swastikas yeah. on federal buildings. And I mean it was just it was scary. And I thought, yeah. you know, I don't know. I want to put something out there that's more about love and acceptance. And yeah. um I just want to put something positive out in the world. And so and also something about my Jewish family, because we're all the same, you know, we're just a family having Thanksgiving dinner. And so that was where it started. And I called Stephen and I said, what do you think? And he's been my partner, you know, on this from the beginning. So it just made sense that we would co-direct it. And then he also edited it and I produced it. So it was just a really nice project to do. And it made my family so happy. We we yeah. premiered it at the Annapolis Film Festival, uh, which yes. was about you know forty five minutes from where all my family lives, and they all came and you know big huge screen and they got to see you know this documentary where I I found other footage. We're we're not like a a family that always has cameras on us. So, um, but I happened to find like these this these home videos and was able to put those in and. Um, called in every favor and asked friends, you know, a friend to help compose it. And, uh, or I found this female composer, actually, she's not, she wasn't a friend, but she became a friend because she was so wonderful and helped us. And uh, (laughs) I asked another friend who had a music library and he helped me. And so, yeah, and I ended up financing it myself, but um, I was given, uh, I was left Stuart Kornfeld, who was, who I mentioned before, he was a mentor to me and he and I were close and he left me a little something in his will, which was so kind. And I used that money to pay for the documentary. And I knew that he would be, um, he was a very funny, funny, funny man and um, cynical in every way, but had a deep, dark sense of humor. So he would have um, hated (laughs) the earnestness of my documentary, but he would have (laughs) loved that I did something for myself and that I used it for a film project. And so, you know, and I, I know his sisters and his, um, you know, uh, 
his sister was really happy that I did that. And um, anyway, so it was really, so all around, it was a, you know, it was wonderful to do. You can tell you light up when you talk about it and to hear that there's been so much like good energy and good karma and, and goodness put into this project from every angle. It's just beautiful. I'm glad that you decided to release it so that other people could experience that joy, especially to demystify, uh, you know, some of that anti-Semitism that exists about we're all just people with families and imperfect and figuring it out, you know? Exactly. We're I just love that. all, we all yeah. have everything, you know, all of us have so much in common. Every single person sits around the table yeah. and tells stories. And if you're lucky enough to have a family or your chosen family or your chosen people in your life, you, you, you know, have sat around a table and, you know, told stories to each other. And so that was where the stories of us came from. Does it compel you to now want to direct something or do you feel like this was a one-time special project? You know, it's funny. It's, it's, it was a never. And then it became a like, Oh, I could do that. That's, that was actually fun. (laughs) And I like doing it, you know? So if something came along that made sense or like an episode of television or I'm never saying, I'm not saying never. Whereas I used to say, no, I don't want to direct. Now it's actually, well, maybe, you know, if something came maybe. up that Yeah, worked. if the right thing yeah. came along. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So with everything you've already done and accomplished as a producer, is there anything that you're still, I mean, not if there's anything, I'm sure there is. Like, I guess the question is, what is the one thing that you're still really hoping to do? Is there any big, big goal you want to check off or kind of project you would still love to be a part of making? I think I just want to keep going keep continuing and, and not really, I've never said to myself, I only want to do this. I've never said that. Mm. And, um, I've never said, okay, I just need to do this kind of movie. Um, it's just not been my, uh, my path and that served me well throughout my career because I've been open to other things. And I did say I wanted to do television. I didn't say exclusively, but you know, it's great that I'm doing that now mm-hmm. and I love it. I, I actually loved being a part of it and learning new things and learning how that system works. Um, we're actually, we have two more days of filming. Um, by the time Amazing. we'll be in post by the time this is out. So, uh, that's great. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm just open. You've never placed that much value in the accolades. You've never been like, oh, I'm, I would love to have an Oscar one day or, or work with Oscar winning, you know, filmmakers or get to be a part of shepherding someone to that kind of place in their career. That's not that important. I mean, I think it's really cool. I mean, it's great that I have a golden yeah. globe sitting over there. You know, I mean, that's really fun. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's why I, set out on yeah. my journey. I want to enjoy my work. I, I don't, um, you know, I put, spend so much time working that I just need to enjoy what I'm doing. And so it's not going to be for an end goal because that end goal is so brief, you know, that, that end piece of it, it's, yeah. it's the every day that I need to enjoy because sometimes, you know, it's not well-received or, um, you're not going to get the critics to like something that you did or people don't yeah. watch it. Um, so really you need to enjoy the journey. Oh, I love it. Well, I'm so grateful. Thank you for taking the time to sit with me today and share a bit of, of your journey with me and the listeners. It's why I do this. It's it, people like you coming on and, and sharing that makes the show possible and makes people stay their course and stay inspired and feel less alone in their own journey. So Before I let you go, I always like to wrap up with this fun little lightning round, which are just five fun questions to take us out. Okay. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. It's such a treat to start today with you. Thank you for having me. So nice to see you. Yeah. Likewise, likewise. Okay, so here we go. The lightning round. Okay. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. I like that as my alarm sometimes. Such a great song. Okay, latest piece of art that moved you? It could be a book, film, TV show, anything. I'm going to name something from not a recent thing, but Lars and the Real Girl is an independent movie that really moved me because of the humanity. Um, the humanity in that movie where even though he was odd and 
believing something that nobody else believed, uh, everybody stood behind him and backed him and was kind to him. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Going outside and seeing some sunshine really helps ease the stress. And taking a walk, too. Taking a walk. That's very healthy. Most people say wine. Oh. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and also getting on the phone with my friends and family. So that also does it. Yeah. Yes. Connecting. Connecting. Yeah. To nature, to people. Yes. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. I bought a house right before the pandemic. And it had outdoor space. And that meant the world to me, to be able to be outside and to be able to look at the sky and see the hills. And um, I just really like being, that's why I, I mentioned the sun before, because it just, it means so much to me. So that was really worthwhile because I, was, I am able to have that respite when I go home. Well, the final question, which is borrowing from inside the actor's studio, it's the question that he asks all his guests at the end, inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot, which is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hi, everybody's over there. Go join the party. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think that's it. Who wants more than that? <laughs> that's it. There's nothing more to say. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.